Good evening, everyone. Welcome to another Conservative Friends of the Commonwealth webinar, um, one of a series of events we've hosted over the past year and one of many more to come. Um, we're delighted today to have not only Judith Collins with us, who was as originally billed, but had a last minute addition in Simon O'Connor MP, who's also joining us from Auckland. So without further ado, I'll pass over to Sunil, who will be hosting tonight, and they can start the discussion. Welcome, everyone. Uh, good morning to our friends in New Zealand. Um, you know, we at Conserve Friends that have come off, we're, we're delighted today to have the honour of hosting today's event with Judith Collins uh, and a special guest in Simon O'Connor. Um, as Paul said, my name is Sunil Sharma and I'll be conducting the majority of this session. Um, it, it's an absolute pleasure to have two New Zealand uh, politicians on our platform, the leader of the opposition and the leader of the New Zealand National Party in Judith Collins and uh, Simon O'Connor, a member of the New Zealand House of Representatives. Um, first of all, how are you both? And I, I guess we're, we're coming towards a year since we've all been uh, affected by COVID-19. So how has life been for the past year? Well, well, thank you very much. And um, thank you for the introduction. First off, um, can I just introduce Simon O'Connor? So Simon is a member of parliament for the seat of Tamaki in Auckland. Um, he's also the associate spokesperson for the National Party in Foreign Affairs. Um, and, and he is, in addition, I've asked him to take over a role as our lead person in discussions around CANZAC, uh, the Canadian, uh, Australian, New Zealand and UK um, alliance that uh, is something that's um, being particularly promoted um, from Canada. But uh, also, we've um, you know discussed it with the UK. So I just think it's um, it's quite helpful to have Simon join us today as we discuss things. Uh, we're in uh, a, a new form of uh, another lockdown, and but it's not um, a very hard lockdown. We've had a what we call a level three lockdown in Auckland, which is our major city, a third of the population, uh, just for three days. Um, so it was the strangest thing to suddenly race into lockdown, and then we're back out to a level two. Um, and if level one is pretty much close to normal, uh, level two is not that far away. So we've been in and out of lockdown within a week, which I, I think is going to be very hard for people when they, there's no certainty or no, no particular reason why we're in or out. It's, we had three cases in the country on Sunday and then we were in lockdown. And we got three more cases yesterday and we came out of lockdown. So I'm just a questioning of the government at the moment is about quite where the consistency is and quite how we can tell what's going on. As you imagine what's like, particularly for smaller businesses trying to cope with this. Um, we wanted to generally talk, I mean, New Zealand's in the uh, height of our summer at the moment. So everyone's happy and actually sunshine. So we've got the America's Cup events going on. Uh, we're still having major um, parties and weddings and things, just depends which part of the country. So we're in a, a better situation than many parts of the world. But the issue really is at the moment is two issues. One is about vaccinations, because we've only recently got some enough vaccinations for our border facing workers um, for enough for 30,000 people, which is essentially the border facing workers. And and um, the rest of the country, we don't have any vaccinations in yet. We seem to be very much at the end of the queue. Um, in addition to that, we have um, a situation where we um, are trying to push the government on saliva swabs rather than, um, or instead, as well as the nasal swabs that we all know of. Uh, the government seems very, um, I don't know, not wanting to actually proceed down that path. So there are issues there that we can see ourselves being shut off from the rest of the world, which may well keep us safe from COVID, but will not, without mass immunisation, we are going to end up with no herd immunity and no ability to travel without those vaccinations. So these are issues that we're, we're prosecuting at the moment, but we're also very aware that in New Zealand that when we over-prosecute it or seen as being negative, it can have a, um, a flow-on effect to assist um, people worrying that um, something bad's going to happen and then they sort of uh, start enjoying 
enjoying what the government's saying. So we'll just be very careful about that. So anyway, um, so now if you wanted to ask any questions or anything now, it'd be a great time. Uh, it's great to hear uh, your um, take on what's going on in New Zealand. Um, what, what was the reasoning behind the current lockdown? Uh, it's not, if I'm honest, been hugely documented in this country. So it'd be interesting to know what the actual reasoning was. Well, we, we would find it interesting to know too. Um, and the, um, what we know is that um, the Ministry of Health knew of three cases of uh, the UK variant. Uh, and within a, a half a day, uh, the country was in, Auckland was in a lock, level three lockdown, which meant, you know, gatherings, no more than 10 people, people a lot of people couldn't go to work, um, and a border restriction around Auckland for the rest of the country. And what um, we were told, because it was the UK variant and they weren't quite sure where it came through or how it came through, that they needed to lock down the, the country. Um, and then yesterday we got three more cases from the same, uh, let's say, close contacts of the first three, and we came out of the lockdown. So we're we're, we're seeking some questions. We're going to be questioning in Parliament today around some of the consistency and just quite where the messaging is and what the criteria are. So I, I think it was possibly um, very... It was a situation where we're finding the um, the consistency lacking. Yeah, the, the UK, uh, like a lot of countries across the globe, has really suffered from COVID nineteen. And you guys in New Zealand, on the other hand, seem to have had uh, considerably uh, less. Um, you've been less affected. I think you've had twenty six deaths that have been recorded. What, what, why do you think New Zealand hasn't suffered as much as some of the other countries? Yeah, it's a really um, good question. Well, for a start, we're at the end of the world. Um, we are very, it's very easy to close off our borders. Um, and our borders are, uh, we don't have land borders. We are, um, even though the UK doesn't really have land borders other than within the UK, you're only a hop, step and a skip and a jump away from Europe. We are three and a half hours flight in a modern jet from our nearest neighbour. So we're a very long way away. And so the borders are essentially the, the cargo ships coming in and the um, air flight. So it's quite easy to lock it down. The issue has been is that where we have had COVID-19, it's, it's all come through those borders, of course. And the facilities, the um, MIQ or Managed Isolation Quarantine Facilities, have essentially just been hotels that have been um, changed into being these facilities. That's where any has come in. But I think we are fortunate because we are a small population. Uh, we don't have the, the density of habitation that, say, the UK has, because even though we have only 5 million people, we're actually physically larger than the UK. So we're, we've got a lot of spread out. And so our rural communities have been from memory, entirely unaffected. It's, um, and that's simply because people don't live um, very close to each other. So I think that's it too. And, and the fact that we went into quite a severe lockdown to start with, and people got the message. I think two New Zealanders saw what was happening in the rest of the world because our, our media tends to, a lot of New Zealanders watch overseas media um, and we saw what it was that people did take it very seriously. I think um, it's, it's an interesting point. And that's raised quite a lot on our platform is our population density is um, one of the, the largest across the globe. So it hasn't helped um, in, in times like this. Um, I wanted to go back a few years um, and start to understand uh, your journey into politics. Um, you're obviously a lawyer by a profession uh, before becoming elected to parliament in 2002 as the national MP for Cleveland. what When did you decide that you wanted to be involved in politics? Well, I really started to get interested in politics and involved in um, when National was in government in, uh, and was about to lose the 1999 election. And because it was such a hopeless cause, I thought I might 
get myself involved. So I got involved as a volunteer. So I came from, as you say, I'm a lawyer, but I've and I've also been in, in business. But I came in from the point of view of helping um, as a volunteer, and I ended up essentially putting my hand up to be a candidate in 2002 when we were clearly not going to win um, again. And um, it was sort of, again, something of a, um, a hopeless cause. And the party um, needed people to come through who could have a strength of conviction, which I thought was lacking at that stage. So I ended up becoming selected. The, the number one, the, the final reason why I put my hand up to be an MP was when an existing member of parliament took me aside to tell me I should not do this, that I could just wait until he left his seat and then I could take it over. And I've been, I'd been a volunteer long enough by that stage to know that that wasn't actually how it works. So I decided I definitely have to do it. So that's what I did. And then, you know, I've had a, so far, um, a 19 year career in politics. I've been reading um, about some of your inspirations in your political career. And uh, a lot of our listeners in the UK will be uh, very proud and happy uh, to see that Margaret Thatcher was one of them. Um, we actually had one of our cabinet ministers on our platform recently who spoke very highly of her. Uh, what was it that made you admire her so much? Well, what I, one of the things, I mean, I was um, in New Zealand, obviously, in the 1970s and 80s. And to see uh, the way that Margaret Thatcher had a very clear vision for how to repair the damage uh, wrought by essentially socialist uh, government and what was essentially as well a, trade, a Marxist trade union movement in the UK um, that she gave hope, hope and vision to um, the UK. I also um, well remember this sort of vision of this uh, rather small woman um, just stating very clearly the way things were and with a great deal of humour as well that um, she was, I think, um, one of the great icons in, of our time. And I also enjoyed the fact that she understood that um, things like the opening up of the purchasing of council houses by their tenants, that she understood the aspirations of working people um, and that she wasn't simply concerned about those who already had, had been born uh, with wealth, that she was very much aware of the fact she had to um, think of and understand those aspirations. So I, I felt her, she was a trailblazer. Obviously, she wasn't perfect, as none of us are, um, but I did feel her very clear thinking and um, was really helpful to not only the UK, but to actually the Western world. Before we, we start to... Um to sort of foreign affairs and it would be great to hear uh, some of your um, comments on that Simon. Um, in, in the UK it's been well documented you know how it can be difficult for women in politics uh, you know we, we are seeing a rise in women more women being involved but um, there are some pitfalls and challenges that they face that maybe men don't. Um, do, do you think there has been a significant improvement and what was your experience like especially in New Zealand? <laughs> well, it's not perfect, <laughs> but nobody ever said it would be, did they? <laughs> I think um, we were helped in, in some ways because National had the first uh, woman Prime Minister of New Zealand with Jenny Shipley, followed by Labour's Helen Clark, uh, then now followed by Jacinda Ardern for Labour. I think one of the things is that that is, um, but none of those people have had an easy run. I mean, Jacinda Ardern probably had the best run of all, but uh, certainly both Helen Clark and Jenny Shipley struggled with the fact that if they were uh, strong and decisive, that they would be um, seen as masculine and um, unwomanly and uncaring. And at the same time, if they were all those other things, the traditional female values as such or, or virtues, and they would then be seen as uh, not intelligent enough or not clever enough or not strong enough. So I think they just went with their gut in both cases and, and were quite strong and dynamic leaders. But um, it's, uh, yeah, there are different, different judgments. And um, look, you can, we can always worry about 
those things, or we can just get on, do the best we can. And I think that's um, that's the best way to go is just understand that, um, look, you know, there are people in the world who, you know, have ginger hair and they, they, they say that people are mean to gingers and we have, you know, this, but being a woman in politics is not for the faint-hearted. Actually being in politics is not for the faint-hearted. Yeah, this um, interesting we talk about women and, you know, um, in politics and National Party uh, has um, quite a good record in, in some of their members of, of Parliament um, and some of their activists as well. Um, what are some of the long term challenges facing the National Party? But it'd be good to get um, both of your inputs on this. You know, we, we saw eight years of the Jonki administration from uh, 2008 and then we saw Bill English for a year but you know we've now had four years of uh, Jacinda Ardern's Labour Party how does the National Party begin to close that gap? Well it's a very challenging time as as every party that goes into opposition finds and and you know you'll think back to the time Conservatives have been in opposition you have to take some time to find your way through as a party and in our case, uh, we had uh, factions, we had all those sorts of things, all the classic things that go wrong when a party moves out of government or gets moved out of government um, with various people thinking they could do the better job. And um, the problem with that is that all that happens in, under our system, we tend to, the first election after a loss, uh, we tend to get do worse. So it's the second one we tend to come back and and. Um, and hopefully win or occasionally uh, not and go on to the next one. So I think it's always about staying focused. The other thing is we tend to lose a lot of good people um, and we gain good people, but those good people with their enthusiasm and drive, we often don't have the experience and that's one of the issues too. So it's about making sure we have a good combination. One of the things too, of course, is that um, the Labour Party in opposition tends to be quite radical and when they move into government, they try to, to look more centrist and try to start looking a bit more like us. And, you know, you would have seen the same. You saw that with Tony Blair. Um, and uh, so they start to hoover up some votes of ours, um, just as Blair did um, to the Conservatives. And um, we can react right to that by going even more centrist or else we could go the other way. I think sometimes we just have to sometimes just sit back and watch and then come at the right time on things. So one of the things that we're trying to do very much at the moment, and this is one of the reasons I'm interested in Kansas so much, is looking out to with a vision for the future uh, rather than muddling around in what's happening at the moment so much, thinking about how we can be also have a transformational our vision for New Zealand because um, we certainly haven't had a delivery of transformation in New Zealand from the current government. We've had um, the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern came in with this message that she was only in politics to end child poverty. Well, it's actually got worse, and that was before COVID. So we will point those things out, but we ourselves need to have our own vision for the country, and that's what we're really working on at the moment. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned child poverty. We'll, we'll come to that shortly. I, I want to touch on uh, the, the, the Kanzuk, um agreement. And, you know, it, it's a relationship that's been discussed in great detail on this platform. Um, the ties that bind the United Kingdom with Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know, they're, they're incredibly strong. And yes, they are linguistic and historic, but they're also based on um, families, friendships, a, sh a shared, mature democratic systems of, of governance um, underpinned by the rule of law. What, what do you see the future of um, uh, Kansuk? And do you think one day it could almost form its own block? Yes, I see no reason why we shouldn't explore that. I think there's a very real reason to do so. And all of those things are really important, but also the adherence to the rule of law and a Westminster-style democracy, um, a constitutional monarchy, all of these things are, part, are very important. And as you say, they're all ties that bind us so that we, when, when we look at Kensic, it's not only about trade, but it's also about movement of people and a right to work. Uh, we've had a very close relationship with Australia on um, these for, well, I think it must be 40 years now, um, 
And what that really does is it means that we end up with very close ties personally and as well as politically and trade-wise. But we also, we also have our frictions and we have um, our competition and all those sorts of things. Just, so that doesn't, but I think it is important that we think more about people who think more like us when it comes to human rights, rule of law, um, contract, all those things that are actually part and parcel of our particular democracy. So I think there's a real opportunity and we have, um, we've always had the stumbling block of the agricultural uh, trade, particularly Canada is one of the more likely to um, try and block anything from New Zealand um, in the agricultural sense. But we are also in different hemispheres. So Australia, New Zealand, the Southern Hemisphere, UK and Canada and the Northern Hemisphere, there are real synergies there that we could actually, where we can be more complementary rather than um, always in, in desperate competition. Is that something that, Simon, you'll be working quite a bit on from what I understand, the, the CANS-UK sort of agreement? Yeah, so the leader, uh, Judith, asked me to uh, work uh, with our other parties. So you've got the likes of, uh, well, I can see you've got James Skinner uh, online here, so hello, James, uh, but also across the other uh, MPs and parliaments, uh, particularly but not exclusively in the Conservative side, first and foremost, um, or the centre-right side, so we can build those ties. I think it's what Judith was saying earlier, that Kanzuk is not just simply... Uh, about trade, although that's important. It's about building uh, relationships. So we see that as an opportunity uh, as a centre-right political party, the whole freedom of movement of, of people. So it's a really great opportunity. And as, again, Judith mentioned, we have so many shared ties, it doesn't matter if it's our uh, constitutional monarchy or right through to our, our courts. Uh, we share um, a lot. But I think too, and it, it would have to be said, Sunil, that there's a few things that we've got to work uh, through certainly here in New Zealand, it's probably not as much awareness of Kanzuk as it is in other countries. Um, there's also, well, we can see with some of our trade deals to date, uh, and Judith touched on one aspect, which is agriculture. Um, there's got to be quite a bit of uh, give and take. Uh, so, obviously, if your listeners and other Kanzuk supporters would like to open their markets immediately to New Zealand products, uh, we're there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, the CAMS UK has been discussed in, in, in great deal. Um, I think generally in the UK media, um, on our platform, I don't think there's a single uh, person who doesn't escape a, a CAMS UK question, even if they're not from uh, the CAMS UK region. It's been a, a, a massive talking point. I suppose with Brexit, it's been seen as a huge opportunity uh, for us to explore in. Um, I, I've got a, actually a really good question here from Ella Roberts. We'll, we'll move to the Q&A from the audience a bit later. Um, but I think this question is a, is a really good question. It's a question that we faced uh, quite strongly uh, as Tories in the last government. Um, and she, she's started with, I've watched all of Judith's debates. She did a brilliant job. Um, how can we present conservative policies best to a woke audience who want to be promised all things on tap? Well, when you know the answer, Emma, can you let me know what it is? <laughs> um, I, I think it's it's really hard, um, and um, I know understand uh, that every generation believes that the next generation doesn't have any idea about anything, and um, and also that uh, sorry, LHP. Um, but you know, I also think we have to be understanding that there's always generational shifts in thinking and the way in which people word the same messages. Um, I think the National Party needs to become far more market uh, marketing focused when it comes to our messaging. And I know I have to do that too. And it's, I mean, I'm a lawyer and a business person. I'm not actually a marketer, but I know understand that that is something that I need to work on, as do we. And you're right, Ella, it's very hard to actually do this. And when we have um, people who promise everything, but there's no thought of delivery, um, we've had that, um, 
our job is to point out where they failed, but we also need to have a positive vision. And I think that's where we probably didn't do enough of that in our first term of opposition, where we were seen as sniping and uh, negative. And yes, you do need to be um, hold to account or be negative about various things. But I just think we need to have more of a united vision. And we can't do that if we're um, constantly talking negatively. So I think that's what we need to do. And, and you know, Ella, the National Party, like the Conservative Party, can never go out credibly and say everything's free and there's no payback um, and everyone's going to be happy because we'd lose our own voters who would know that that was nonsense. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, we, we were doing, we were actually doing very well um, in our polling before COVID-19 hit. And um, when we went to a second lockdown, that was sort of the end of it, really. So I think uh, pointing out the failings, but having a vision to keep people safe and uh, give people promise and hope is where we have to be. It's a great question from Ella, and it's something uh, we actually had Salinton Crosby on our platform um, who advised John Howard in, in his government, and uh, he, he gave a speech on one of the issues that uh, Conservatives across uh, the globe, including ourselves in the UK, faces. You know, we're, we're very good at arguing with reason, and you know, our arguments are always very logical, and they always um, tend to make sense, and there's always a great economic um, points to them, but we sometimes lack the uh, emotion side of things making that emotion uh, in line with the reason is when you can really connect with the audience and I think that's probably where the left do a bit better than us they're very strong at the sort of emotional argument I'm not sure how reasonable their arguments are but they're uh, definitely strong in the emo on the emotion side um, good point I, I want to take it back to when you served in the John Key administration you know that was obviously eight years of um, uh, him as um the Prime Minister, what was that experience like? Well, John was a consummate politician. So, um, and he was very capable in leadership. Uh, what I found, I had a good relationship with him. So I would, um, I've instituted some of the things in, in our party now that he used to have with the government. So as a, as a um, he ran it more like a business in which case he would say every minister has to front up with their, with their plans for the year, how they're going to execute them, and how they'll be judged. Um, and I've instituted that now for our caucus. So giving people some direction, some structure, and um, also some assistance where they need it, and, uh, and giving them the answers that they need as to, is this something I should pursue? So I've done very similar to him on that. I think in some ways, his leadership, the, the one thing where I found he, there are a couple of things. One, one that would be a complaint, and that would be from a lot of our supporters, that he didn't actually take the opportunity to use political capital to make significant changes and transform more of the New Zealand economy that he could have. And that would be a complaint that is well known in New Zealand. Um, but that is because um, people under our MMP system, uh, no doubt he felt the need to make sure that the coalition partners that we had to deal with um, were still in the tent as such. So he was very good at managing coalitions and he's very good at managing people. Um, so I found that, good. I thought the, the one downside, I always felt that it was very much... Um, uh, either you're in the tent or not in the tent. And often, even though we personally got on fine, I often felt a little bit of an outsider. And that is possibly because of my um, often forthright views and my inability to just sit there and take it and shut up. <laughs> so my face normally shows everything I'm thinking anyway. So, <laughs> so I think that, that generally we, you know, I think he was... Um, we could always rely on him to be able to do his job. You know, he was, uh, he's very capable. I also want to go back to um, something you mentioned a bit earlier about child poverty. You know, I, I found it very surprising in New Zealand um, that it actually has one of the worst rates of uh, child poverty and infant mortality. 
um, in the developed world. Um, I think both you and Jacinda Ardern have this target of halving child poverty in New Zealand by 2030. Um, that said, it studies in fact show that under the Jacinda administration, child poverty has not uh, fallen and it's still a clear cause for um, concern. How do you intend to reduce the number of children in poverty in New Zealand? Well, it's, um, it's one of those situations where most people in New Zealand do very well. So it's not just the haves and the have-nots. It's actually most people are in the having and getting along reasonably well. The issue is, is that um, we have particularly uh, in parts of New Zealand a culture of um, gangs, violence, intergenerational welfare dependency, intergenerational family violence, and children are born into homes where there is without hope. So that is, that, that is I think, true in most parts of the world. But the difference clearly has to be, in a way through, has to be around education. Because where we do see that where children have or adults have got away from that sort of lifestyle and that sort of grinding poverty and hopelessness is it's through education. And one of the things that I think the current government is failing massively on is on education and education standards. We tried to improve it with a thing called national standards when we came in, and that was all around making sure that children could read and write and their parents knew what was happening at schools. Uh, first thing Labour did when they got in was to get rid of any of this uh, required reporting to parents. So some most schools do report, but they can report on, you know, Johnny is, is, is happy rather than Johnny can't read. Um, so we do need to, I do need, I, I feel very strong that we need a, a visionary plan around education. So Paul Goldsmith has been is our um, MP with Portfolio for Education, has been charged with being as radical as possible um, to bring about the best possible results because education um, has to be it because it's the only way forward for kids to get out of um, the situations they have. And I think sometimes um, we often talk a lot about families um, and we often talk about families being the answer. For some people, I will controversially but truthfully say families are the problem. Um, and those are the families where they hold, they hold children back, they hold each other back, and they don't want to see people get ahead. It's also true that the families living in poverty, children living in poverty, are overwhelmingly Māori, uh, the indigenous people of New Zealand, first peoples as such, uh, representing around 15% of the population. Now, that is not to say that all Māori or even most Māori are in that case, but there is a significant number who are. And partly... We have, well, we have been very committed as a party and when we've been in government to treaty settlements uh, with different um, iwi or what you'd call tribes um, around uh, wrongdoings when co colonisation occurred and land was in many cases taken off uh, people. Those treaty settlements are, I believe, crucial to helping people to, number one, get access to capital, but also to move from a sense of grievance into a sense of opportunity. And we've seen that in parts of the country, uh, particularly in our South Island, where it's been staggering to see the way in which Māori-led tourism has been instrumental in bringing back growth um, into an area, but also for um, the people who are members of that particular uh, iwi, which is the Maori name for a tribe. So I just think that these are, these are big issues for us and no country sort of seems to get it perfect. But the current government's plans of just putting up wages isn't necessarily going to do it. We need to have more productivity and productivity growth has slowed in New Zealand significantly um, and even before COVID. So that's where we see the use of technology, technological advances and changes as being a way forward for us.
And we do have a population that is highly technologically literate. We're used to, it. we're often seen as a, um, as a microcosm, uh, as a mini market for some of the big IT companies to use tech on to, to trial it out for us. Um, so we have opportunities there. And being at the bottom of the world, being with the most you know, beautiful environment and not huge and high density, it's amazing the number of bigger high tech investors who want to come to New Zealand. Um, so we've got opportunities there. You, you touched on um, uh, something there that I, I know is a huge talking point in the UK and that, that's um, immigration. Um, you know, we're obviously uh, leaving the European Union. We have the opportunity to decide our own immigration policy, and it's causing uh, a lot of debate and a lot of conversation here on what that should look like. Um, how do you think uh, New Zealand's immigration policy is, and um, are the areas in which you think there can be some improvements? Yes, so we've had restricted immigration for many, many years, and we've been able to do that because, again, we are an island at the bottom of the world. Um, I think many people have seen us, um, when we were in government anyway, nationals in government, we introduced um, basically high net worth visas for people to bring capital into New Zealand and skills. That um, had varying success, mostly relatively good, some not so good. But what New Zealanders, and we always have to be careful of, is that there is a general, general um, fearfulness of too much what people would see as foreign intervention or big money coming in and making things more difficult for New Zealanders to buy. Um, it, since I've been in politics, it's been a common refrain, and Simon... O'Connor will have heard it many times of, we can't have these foreigners coming in to buy our land. And I, I can't help myself occasionally just saying, and where are they taking it? And the answer is nowhere. And actually we're all ultimately foreigners in New Zealand, even Māori, the first people here 800 to 1,000 years ago, which in English terms is pretty not, not that long ago, um, so if you consider those migrations. Um, so I just think it's, um, it's really important that we take people along with us. So are people interested in big money, big skilled people coming in? Yes. Um, do they worry? Yes. But the immigration, we need to be very targeted, I think, on skills that we need. And we need high-tech skills. We need engineering skills. We need... Uh, people in the IT industry and we need also uh, people even to pick fruit because we have a quite a large horticultural sector um, so from one end of the spectrum to the other but we actually need people who want to work and unfortunately we do have unemployment here um, not as much as many countries we do very well but we also have a lot of people who aren't even on an unemployment benefit because they're on a sickness or uh, benefit. And so we need to make sure we we bring people in who want to work. And most people, most immigrants, I mean, I'm a very pro-immigration person, uh, come to work and actually generally are a positive influence on any nation. Um, and I think, you know, this is one of the things that tends to get forgotten. The most dynamic and exciting uh, economies and countries in the world are often those that have uh, significant migration coming into them. It's an interesting um, point there on wanting immigrants who actually come to the country and want to work. I mean, it's been a, a massive contentious point in, in the UK um, and it was one of the main uh, reasons cited uh, for us leaving the European Union was on immigration policy. Um, and it's interesting to see um, how you guys have, that, have had a restrictive um, policy for a very long time. I, I want to touch on something you mentioned there on nationalism, because it's, uh, again, another thing that we talk a lot about in the in the UK, and it's almost has a very negative connotation in our country. And I think it's something that, that our party aren't, um, because of the party, don't necessarily like that narrative. You know, I think the idea of being uh, patriotic and um, being proud to be British is, is an important part of um, being British and being in this country, do you think that's an issue New Zealand faces also? Is it something in the sense of 
you know, take yourself as an example, to be pro-nationalist, often it comes people with different stigmas and different, you know, this straight away the argument is oh, anti-immigration or whatever the um, particular things. Is that an issue you face with the National Party in New Zealand? Not so much the National Party because we are very broad church when it comes to this. Um, certainly uh, our politics, I believe, has been, in New Zealand, has been um, unhelpfully skewed along a path of a them and us type mentality, whether it's about immigrants, whether it's about people with more money than those who don't, all of these things. And the, we had until the last election, I mean, there's one good thing that came out of the last election was the end of a party called New Zealand First. Um, it is probably more akin to the British National Party um, or, you know, in terms of a quite divisive around ethnicity, race, and um, all guised up in the, you know, really just caring about New Zealand. Um, we saw a lot of anti-Chinese New Zealander sentiment coming from them and then picked up by the Labour Party when they were last in opposition. Um, these are, you know, quite, in my, my opinion, if um, it, it's actually a bit of a stain on New Zealand's political history, in my opinion. And um, the good thing is, is that they actually, they, they got thrown out of government, uh, out of both government and parliament, because they were in the coalition with Labour. There were good things that they did, but ultimately that sort of um, attracting the those who feel that um, they're disenfranchised and feeling that um, the world has moved on and they haven't moved on with it, was actually always going to be a problem for our country. And we've had them in politics since 1993. Right. Um, I think that moves on nicely to my next question. I saw your State of the Nation speech. You you shared um, the five sort of main priorities, um, COVID-19, the economic recovery, hardship and uh, public safety, housing and infrastructure, as well as world-class cities, uh, the tech sector and opportunities post-COVID. Um, I thought I'd give you an opportunity to discuss that further with some of our viewers um, in the UK in particular. Right. Well, I think we all know about COVID, so I think we'll just move past that one. But what I see with um, the fact that New Zealand has ultra-fast broadband, which is one of the best infrastructure projects that I can think of in the last you know, decade, and we brought that in when we were at last in government. It was rolled around, out around the country very successfully. But it enabled most people to be able to work from home uh, through uh, use of broadband, ultra-fast broadband. So what it struck me that every crisis is an opportunity to think about how we can do things differently. And what one of the things that I learned through the campaign is just how many high-tech businesses we have in New Zealand. So, for instance, there's a a business that uh, makes robots that seeds fields with um, seeds. So it's made for the US market on their big planes. So instead of bringing in illegal workers to work, back-breaking work, there's a robot that works 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and the only human intervention is to make sure they have enough seed in their in the, in the robot. So this is the sort of thing that we're, we're seeing being made in New Zealand now. Other countries are doing things too. But clearly, I think the tech area is as, as absolutely important in tech revolution, as important to us now as the industrial revolution was. Um, and, or, the, or let's say even the combustion engine. These are incredibly important times and every country is seeking to have the resources to do this their people to do it the education to do it and for a little country like ours we have certain advantages and one is that we um, we can attract people who are interested in a lifestyle plus also have both capital and the ability to help us with it but we also have another and that is that New Zealand as I'm sure you know is a you know, we're little, but we are a giant when it comes to agriculture. 
And it's not that we that that we have any huge advantages. I mean, we have relatively temperate climate, but where we really have the advantage is that we have had to innovate. So it was a New Zealand, a New Zealander in the 1870s who invented and started the first of the um, frozen sheep shipments to the UK. Uh, he was a Chinese uh, immigrant, by the way. So came for the gold fields and ended up doing this. So we've had to innovate and we've had to constantly bound a threat that we're always trying to do something differently. If we take um, kiwi fruit, well known in the world, entirely um, taking the Chinese gooseberry and New Zealanders changing and using technology and research and development to turn it into an entirely new thing, which is now known as kiwi or kiwi fruit around the world. So that's actually another example of success. We have an attitude around technology and science and research, which means we can do things. And um, I hate that term punching above our weight on thing. But we can be cleverer because we have to be. Um, so we, we have opportunities. So when I talk about the world-class cities technology, this is a real passion. And why is it a real passion? Because we can't just say, oh, we always have a quarter acre plot that we have a house on. We have to think differently. We, we really lack public, infra, uh, public transport. Um, people live in, the, in London or other parts of the UK and they come back home to New Zealand and say, why can't we have a, you know, a subway system like London? Well, you know, we're, we've got this, we, we don't have population density, but we can do something differently. And whether that's in technology around, um, you know, trackless trains, uh, whether it's around driverless uh, cars, drone use for couriers, all these sorts of things. This is something I'm extremely passionate about. And I just see it as part of our visionary look for um, the future rather than saying, well, we want to go back to what we used to have back in the 1970s. We can do a lot better than that. Housing is part of that too. So we, when I look at housing, house prices in New Zealand, uh, particularly Auckland, are at astronomical levels. Uh, we are now one in Auckland, one of the least uh, affordable housing areas in the developed world or in the world. And if you look at salary to house prices, it's like London. And that's ridiculous. Um, and a lot of that is based on the fact that um, people feel that housing is a safe haven for money. Um, the current very low interest rates are encouraging that. And because, too, I believe that we've had very restrictive land practices uh, for the last 30 years around where houses can be built, um, the style of those houses, what can happen, very, very restrictive. And um, we really do need to adapt and adopt to that. And part of the... Um, asking people to have higher density housing, for instance, is making sure that they also have access to green spaces, high technology, all those sorts of things. So I don't know, Simon, if you'd like to sort of comment on that. Simon um, lives in a nice leafy area, as do I. Um, and, um, you know, everyone likes everything just the same. But ultimately, we do need to change. But Simon might want to add something to that because his constituents all are enjoying very high value of, of housing, but unfortunately their children can't afford to buy a house. Yeah, it's an illustration of one of the great um, conundrums. Uh, New Zealand is changing fundamentally and across a range of, of issues. Um, you know, I'm, I will admit in my mid forties and from where New Zealand was as a child, the way it thought about things to how it engaged with the world uh, has certainly changed big time. So we're not static as a country. I think a lot of the things which Judith has touched on illustrate that. Uh, but we do have a conundrum in that you have a, a set of New Zealanders who have done particularly well. Uh, they've worked hard. Uh, they've saved their money. They've invested prudently. Uh, and now they're enjoying that. Uh, but we have a little gap developing, uh, and particularly for our younger generation coming through. So the likes of my 
stepkids, for example, who are struggling to get on to the, the housing ladder and in very, using that as an example, and in very crude terms, um, they're competing with a, a wealthier uh, set of Kiwis. So it becomes impossible. You go to a house auction, for example, uh, and you're up against the 70-year-old the with four houses already uh, and the 25-year-old who's been struggling to pull the deposit together. How exactly you fix it is a point of major discussion for the National Party, and it won't surprise you that being a conservative or a centre-right-leaning party, um, you're not wanting to um, radically change the market in a way that's going to, to harm one side at the cost of another. Uh, so we're not a party that wants to uh, start massive uh, taxes and to punish people for saving for their you know, properties. Uh, but equally, how do we, and we've, we've done some experiments in this uh, area quite successfully of how do you provide some inducements um, through the Crown uh, to the likes of first uh, home buyers. And it's not often advocated, and I'll finish on this, um, that actually under the last national government, uh, the rate of first home ownership uh, remained pretty static, actually. The, the impression that things were really, really bad, but through a series of initiatives uh, that Judith was also part of, uh, things were relatively stable. But more will need to be done. But the key point is that a, a good centre-right approach uh, doesn't try to punish one group of people over another. Uh, and we'll wrestle with that conundrum uh, for a little while in opposition, uh, but then hopefully in government soon. Uh, thank you for uh, both your insights into that. I know housing is another big talking point in the UK. Um, I'll, I'll pass it quickly to Paul, who has a question uh, for you both. Thank you both. For really interesting discussion so far. I had kind of a general question that I thought we couldn't really leave without asking. It's about, obviously, the Commonwealth and where you both see New Zealand's role in the Commonwealth and where you would like to see, I guess, the Commonwealth kind of move, do moving forward and how you would kind of like to see it working as an organisation. Well, thank you for that. Um, I think Simon and I will share views on this one, that uh, the Commonwealth is a very, um, you know, it, it's a very diverse group, obviously, of countries, but with um, a shared background and history. Um, in terms of certainly um, Britain. To, to me, um, the Commonwealth has, is opportunities for us. So we have uh, very focused in the Pacific, Asia Pacific, as a, a trading um, block, you could say, well, not so much a block, but an area. And we've become very dependent on China when it comes to trade. So we have about a third of our produce uh, goes to China. It has probably helped us through the, has definitely helped us through the global financial crisis and has certainly um, helped us in terms of the COVID response. None of that means, though, that we suddenly um, ignore the fact that we are part of the Commonwealth, which has the, as I said, the rule, concepts, the rule of law, a shared history and, and um, understanding of Westminster-style democracy. But um, we could say it's very diverse, lots of different parts of it. Um, it's a club as such or a family. But then again, we could say Europe is extremely diverse and has spent most of the 20th century fighting each other um, and all oh, the centuries before that too. So, you know, if uh, we can as a Commonwealth, I think, um, understand each other better and, and see opportunities for us all, not only in trade, but in people movement. I think in most New Zealanders would have very little contact or connection through to, say, Africa, where there are uh, significant numbers of people who are part of the Commonwealth. Um, I think that's an opportunity for us as a, as a country to look more to, um, say, countries in Africa, particularly uh, countries that are, are well-functioning. And I often notice when I am in the UK, when we were allowed to travel, uh, just how connected the UK is to Africa and the Middle East, while New Zealand tends to um, not so much be, be there. But it is important, I think, for us, for our sovereignty, um, that New Zealand explores not only other trading relationships, but actually other relationships generally. And we, we have to be part of that. Otherwise, we are just a little country at the bottom of the earth with 5 million people. Thank you for that. 
I might add very quickly, the, the Commonwealth is great. Uh, and conceptually, I think, you know, particularly uh, liberal democracies uh, need to combine together more. In other words, more, if you will, commonwealths, more groupings is better because we're seeing the opposite in other parts of the world where there's actually a deliberate attempt to break things uh, down. So the, the Commonwealth's incredibly positive uh, from my point of view. Well, it's all of what Judith said too, our commonality uh, from, well, for 16 of us in particular, the same head of state judicial systems. Um, I think there's a real opportunity for the New Zealand parliament here uh, to leverage on that more. Uh, it's only a small thing, but we have lots of inter-parliamentary travel. Um, I've argued to this time unsuccessfully that we should uh, preference uh, the Commonwealth, not exclusively, but a little bit of what Judith was saying there, let's engage um, our Commonwealth partners and the likes of Africa. Uh, but it's also for me quite important that because the Commonwealth, what, 56 nations, one of you will pull me up, I've got that wrong, quite big, and some of those Commonwealth, um, which is why, again, the likes of Kanzuk really come into itself. In other words, the Commonwealth's good, but groups within that is not harmful um, as, as well. But it's something to be celebrated in a world which is trying to divide that actually uh, 50 plus nations uh, are willing to uh, get together and celebrate their commonality. I think one of the things I've noticed having been in government here or in parliament and in government under both, when there's been first a Labour uh, government and then a Conservative government in the UK, is a different attitude towards both New Zealand and the Commonwealth. Um, I make no, you know, apologies for this. I, um, when the U, when when Labour was in government in the UK, not once in fifteen years did we have a visit from a foreign secretary to New Zealand, and that was extraordinary. And having met with um, ministers there under Tony Blair's and then Gordon Brown's governments. Um, there was no interest in the Commonwealth that I could see, and certainly not in us. But once um, David Cameron came in, the Conservatives, we had William Hague visiting within a nanosecond, and then coming the next year. And we it was reminded to us that it wasn't the Foreign Office, it was the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And to me, that difference was staggering. And I think that... Um, one of, the, one of the things that people tend to forget is that in a little country like ours is that having served in the same wars together, having been at the same things, having my father served in World War II, um, New Zealand was always there, as was Australia. Um, and we found the time of um, being shoved to the side as a, some sort of old colonial... Um, relic are somewhat uncomfortable. So we much prefer, well, I personally much prefer um, it when we now go back to the UK when we can and people actually do take the calls and they do want to see us and we do want to chat. That's great to hear. Um, we're obviously a bit biased on, on our platform with the Commonwealth base. It's good to, <laughs> it's good to hear that um, reaction uh, from uh, you guys in New Zealand to notice the difference. And it's worth noting at some point, you know, our parliamentary chair of this organization is Helen Grant. And um, she's actually the special yeah. envoy uh, for Nigeria. So um, that may be a, a, something that we can talk about in, in the future, um, arranging that sort of conversation. Um, so we are uh, actively uh, building closer ties with Africa. And I think you can see on social media the what List Trust is doing, especially in India and some of the other Commonwealth countries. Um, my final question before uh, I let you guys go, let you guys go. I know you've got probably a busy day ahead. Um, there's been a lot of talk on the comprehensive and progressive agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, otherwise known as more simply the CPTPP. I'm not sure if that's much more <laughs> simple, but um, and in the the, the last couple of weeks, uh, the UK has announced it. You know, is planning to apply to join that free trade agreement. Um, New Zealand are obviously already part of that agreement. What are your thoughts on the CPTPP? And do you think it's a wise move for the UK to join? Well, I think it's always a wise move. Um, the New Zealand has constantly been uh, seeking and being part of free trade agreements. And it's not, obviously, they need to work for each country. But 
in terms of if you're looking at um, a block of nations, not only in Asia, but also right around the Pacific in South America, as well as um, through the um, through North America, and unfortunately, uh, US pulled out of it. But um, it's a very important trading block. And from our point of view, it is worthwhile to be part of it. We um, are the first developed nation or first, first world country to have had a free trade agreement with China, for instance, and we're now getting an updated one. Uh, but from our point of view, these are the ways in which you build relationships, but it's also the way to for everyone that we actually we do that. I mean, that's um, that's you know why pretty much um, UK went into Europe, wasn't it? Was for for free trade, and then you ended up with highly restricted people telling you how to make a sausage type trade. So um, I think these are the things that that will will work. Um, we're also very much like a UK New Zealand free trade agreement. Um, and even from opposition, we would be cheering that on because we are a party of free trade. Uh, well, thank you for your uh, time today, uh, uh, both of you. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and hopefully we can do this someday in person and the not too distant future. I'll pass it over to Paul uh, now. Um, just yeah, a big thank you once again to both of you and to everyone for joining. Our next event is um, with another colleague of yours, Simon Bridges, on uh, Sunday UK time, Monday morning in New Zealand. And then we have, of course, on the 4th of March, John Howard, the former Australian Prime Minister. But thank you both, Judith and Simon, for joining. It's been a fantastic discussion. And obviously, yeah, we look forward to hopefully um, having an in-person event sometime in the future. Thank you very much. Have a lovely evening in your case. <laughs>